morning, everybody. My name is Peter Kroll. I am one of the elders here at Grace Fellowship Church. This summer, my nine-year-old son, Ethan, learned how to jump off a diving board. It was very exciting, and it was a remarkable day of transformation where we were at a friend's house, and uh, Ethan was standing at the end of the diving board, asked, asked me for help to learn how to jump in off the board, so I swam over to the deep end of the pool and was treading water, ready to, to help him after he got in the water, started talking him through it, and right then, as it, he was about to do it, he actually started to freak out, and changed his mind. He didn't want to do it. And I was exactly the same way as a kid. Diving boards are just terrifying. And I, I, I told him and told him and told him that if he jumped, he wouldn't die. And I would help him once he got in the water. And I knew he would enjoy it. And he was running out of time because we weren't going to be in this pool forever. But he melted down and he sat hopelessly by the side of the pool. So I didn't force him to do it. I gave him space to calm down and figure out what he wanted to do. But later that afternoon, before I even realized what had happened, he went back himself to the board and hurled himself into the water. He was still scared out of his mind. And I asked him later why he did it. And he said, I just really wanted to see what it was like. I was so proud to see his courage and his rapid change of mind. His fear didn't completely go away until he had jumped a few more times, but he chose to believe what I had told him, that he wouldn't die, that he would actually have fun if he tried this out. And despite how he felt, he chose to try something crazy by acting on the truth that I had spoken to him. And by the end of that day, he was actually doing flips off the board. It was pretty amazing. Good job, Ethan. This morning, we continue our study of the book of Mark. We're in chapter 5 this morning. If you have a church Bible, it's on page 545. And Mark is all about how Jesus is the Son of God, which according to Mark, it means that Jesus is God's authorized king. And in the first half of this book, Mark is showing us this king's credentials. And in these few chapters, we're in the middle of a, a series of episodes about the people who follow Jesus, where Mark is showing us what does it look like to follow Jesus? What does Jesus expect? And like Ethan on the diving board, the people who follow Jesus will demonstrate for us this dichotomy between fear and faith. And there are those who overcome their fear to believe the truth, and there are those who don't, who, those who give in to their fears. And he started this at near the end of chapter 4 and verse 40, when Jesus said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? The disciples had seen Jesus calm a hurricane with just a few words. And they were scared that they didn't yet believe that he was God's king. And then in the next section, at the beginning of chapter 5, Jesus waged war against a battalion of demons. And the people who heard about it, they were terrified and asked Jesus to leave the region. But the man who had been healed of the demons, he believed, 
Some were scared and some believed. And that man who had been healed, he believed and spread the word. This theme of fear versus faith continues in earnest over the next few scenes that we will look at today. And the punchline, the heart of the passage, is in chapter 5, verse 36. I just want to tell you this now. Down in verse 36, where overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. As we go through this, I, I want to make a note for you that uh, that the words faith and believe, it, they're, they're basically the same word. In English, they're different words, but faith is just the noun form. Believe is the verb form, but it's the same thing. So when we talk about believing or we talk about having faith, we're talking about the same thing. So fear must not control faith or believing must characterize the follower of Jesus. So in these four episodes this morning, we will see four things on your outline. First, that imploring faith must replace humiliating fear. Second, saving faith must replace embittering fear. Third, persevering faith must replace terminal fear. And fourth, fearful unbelief is something to marvel at. Let's pray and then I will read the first section. Father, please open our eyes to see how deep-seated our fears are. And Lord, please give us the courage to replace these fears with true faith in Jesus, the Son of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First scene, imploring faith must replace humiliating fear, starting in chapter 5 of Mark, verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well, made well and live. And he went with him. Here's our first scene. Verse 21 provides the setting. Well, once again, we're by the sea. This is where Jesus spends most of his time in the, this first section of Mark. And in verses 22 and 23, we get this remarkably personal scene where the ruler of the local synagogue comes to Jesus and asks him to heal his daughter. Now, observe a few things in here with me. First, notice that Mark names the ruler of the synagogue. He says, verse 22, Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. This is interesting because Mark rarely names people in his book except for the disciples of Jesus. He names them, but all the people that Jesus has helped and healed have not been given names. We've had Simon's mother-in-law. We've had the leper. We've had the paralytic. We've had the man with the withered hand. In the last section, the battalion of demons had a name. Their name was Legion, but Mark never told us the name of the man who had all the demons. And so this is very personal as Mark gets us there and gives us the, Jairus' name. The second thing to notice is that Jairus implores Jesus earnestly. Verse 23, he implored him earnestly. This man is desperate. And Mark uses some strong words that the other gospel writers don't use there. 
The third thing to notice that's interesting is that in verse 23, Mark quotes Jairus directly. This same scene appears also in Matthew and Luke, and neither of them quote Jairus directly the way Mark does. Where Mark says, he, he implored Jesus earnestly, saying, quote, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. My little daughter, come lay your hands on her. In a few short verses, Mark does a remarkable bit of storytelling where he puts us right there in the crowd. He makes this story come alive with these details and the way he tells this story. If you want later, you can read in Matthew 9 or in Luke, I think it's Luke chapter 8, yeah, where the parallel is. And they come across much more factual, sterile, clinical Whereas Mark makes us feel like we know the people involved. And from the beginning of this episode, and this is going to carry through to close to the end of the chapter, Mark tells the story from the perspective of the people near Jesus. So we're, we're reading this story through the eyes of Jairus. And though Jesus is a character who speaks and acts, the story is told through the eyes of Jairus, and the next part will be told through the eyes of the woman who is bleeding. And it's up until verse 36, which is the key verse where Jesus overhears the conversation and says, don't fear, only believe. From there, Jesus' perspective will dominate the story. But for now, as we see events through the eyes of Jairus, what should we see? And what we should see is that imploring faith must replace humiliating fear. Verse 23, he implores Jesus earnestly. And what I mean by humiliating fear, well, imploring faith, of course, means imploring. He's begging Jesus earnestly to do something. And what I mean by humiliating fear is the fear of not being respectable. Humiliating fear is this, the fear of being humiliated, of being put down, of being ridiculed. Because Jesus has interacted with Jewish leaders before this in Mark, and they have already begun plotting to kill Jesus. They've accused Jesus of being in league with Satan, and they they were willing to break the Sabbath, go against their own rules in order to get Jesus out of their way. And here comes Jairus, a respectable Jewish leader. And he refuses to sing the same tune as the other Jewish leaders. He sees what Jesus has done, and he can't deny that Jesus is the only one who is able to help his daughter. And so he's willing to go against the establishment. He's willing to risk being ostracized, possibly losing his influence or his position. He might be humiliated at the next synagogue council meeting. But he gives it up. He gives it all up on the chance that Jesus is the real deal. He begs Jesus just to come and touch his daughter. How does this apply for us? Please don't ever become too respectable to beg. Don't ever become too respectable to beg. Imploring faith must replace humiliating fear. If Jesus is the true king, then he can do for you things that nobody else can do. 
And it's not selfish to want things from Jesus as long as what you want matches up with what he wants to give you. He is the king. He decides what's best for us. And if we want what he thinks is best, we'll trust his definition of what's best and we're on solid ground. For example, avoiding a financial crisis in my life might not be best for me right now. But drawing closer to him through my next financial crisis might be best. And so I can beg and beg and beg him to draw me closer. I can beg for the needs that are in my life because he cares. Jesus came to give us life and to give us life to the fullest. He came to end the misery of sin and to reunite us to God. So as you see places in your life or the people you love who need his life, by all means, beg for it. Don't be afraid of what you might look like or what others will think. Be willing to become a fool for Christ's sake. Sometimes I fear praying in public. I fear being humiliated because I feel like my prayers always sound the same. And I'm, I'm not very clever in my prayers in public. And I fear the humiliation of not being more thoughtful or not being more diverse in prayer. But my heart's cry is always the same. God, Jesus, please help me, help us to know you better. I just want to be with you. And this is what I pray over and over and over again. And I'm learning not to be afraid of begging for these things. Because I need his help. So what should you be begging Jesus for? And how does fear of humiliation hold you back? Because if you're subject to humiliation over long periods of time because you give in to that fear, it will tempt you to become a bitter person. That's where Mark goes in this next section. Starting midway through chapter 24, we see that saving faith must replace embittering fear. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So we get the scene again in verse 24. The great crowd throngs about him. In verses 25 through 27, I find to be very dramatic because in the original Greek behind this, all of the verbs, as it talks about the woman in verses 25 through 27, all of the verbs are participles 
up until the word touched near the end, at the end of verse 27. And what I mean by that, a participle in English, it's an ing verb. And it doesn't come across in a lot of the translations because it makes for too long of a sentence. But it, Mark strings together so many weak verbs as he tells this woman's history that it builds this tension. It's, it's kind of like this. He says, we, we could translate it this way. And a woman having a discharge of blood for 12 years and having suffered much under many physicians and spending all that she had and with nothing getting better but instead getting worse, hearing about Jesus, coming up behind him in the crowd, feel the tension? She touched his garment. And there is the main verb of the sentence that Mark just builds up to through these three verses. And in 28, he, he tells us that what she was thinking, she touches his garment in faith that she will be made well. And immediately, verse 29, the discharge dries up and she feels the healing in her body. Now, as, as far as I'm able, let me try to explain what I think is happening here. This woman has had a chronic condition for 12 years, we're told in verse 25. 12 years. Her body has gone completely haywire. Not just for a few days each month, but every day for over 12 years. That's more than 4,380 days of bleeding. She has been suffering the physical effects for that entire time. Effects like cramping, hormonal imbalances, the discomfort and the potential shame of living within a strict and suspicious community. And this also has serious spiritual ramifications for her. She would have been considered unclean which means that she would have been disqualified to participate in public worship services. Very few people would have been willing to be near her, to touch her, to embrace her, lest they also become disqualified to join in public worship services. She has been ostracized from among the people in addition to the pain and the discomfort and the imbalances. And in addition to that, because she can't attend the public worship, she has no opportunity ever to offer a sacrifice to get right with God. Because she, she can't even go to the temple. She can't bring an animal to, to take her place and to make her ritually right, pure, clean with God. For 12 years, she has been incredibly alone from people and from God. But she cares. She desperately cares about it. She has done everything she can think of to make it right. She spent everything she has, verse 26. She has refused to give up or lose hope. Now, for how many of us would that become extremely embittering to have an experience like this for that long? She's refused to give up. She's refused to lose hope. She's given up everything she has, and yet she has been blocked at every turn. And Mark tells us in verse 26 that she was not getting better, but rather getting worse. 
Have you ever tried to do the right thing over a period of years without progress? Have you ever tried to compensate for a learning disability and become more educated? Or have you tried to give yourself to sacrificial community service and evangelism, but few people come to faith and the people close to you resent your efforts? Or have you tried to read your Bible for years and years and years, but you still never understand or get any closer to God? You just feel blocked and blocked and blocked again. This can be quite embittering. When, especially if we lose hope, that it can ever change. We get cynical about life and about the world around us. We get touchy around anyone who doesn't understand our pain. And so in verses 30 to 34, Jesus perceives that this power has gone out from him, and he turns around and he, 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 he asks this woman to come forward. Who touched me? And Jesus doesn't do this to call her out. By any means, he does it to praise her. Because she had risked everything in one last effort, pushing through the crowd, making everybody unclean because they're touching her and coming into contact with her. And she refused to give in to fear and bitterness. She risked the outrage of the crowd. She went to the one place where life was to be found and she was so convinced that life was to be found there that she didn't even think she needed to bother Jesus. All she had to do was get a handful of his cloak. You see, her faith is not a perfect faith, but her faith has a perfect object. Biblical faith, saving faith, Jesus tells her, your faith has made you well. Your faith has saved you. Biblical faith is not about how firmly you believe something against all the facts. Biblical faith is not about how wildly risky you are against all wisdom. Biblical faith is not about how spiritual you are against standard human experience. Biblical faith is all about who you trust. This is what makes someone's faith a saving faith. Not how strong the faith is. It's whom the faith is in. Who is the object of the faith? How does this apply to us? Friends, grab onto Jesus. Grab onto Jesus. All you need is a piece of his cloak. Don't wait. Don't hesitate. Don't fear. Just get your hands on him. Whatever it takes. What does that mean? It means listen to listening to him. Getting to know him. Speaking to him in prayer, hearing him through the Bible, staying as close as you can to him. Because if you can get a piece of this Jesus, you just may come away with the life with God you never thought possible. Why? It's because Jesus is the one who brings life to the dead. That's what Mark wants us to know next. Why is he worth grabbing? Because he is the one who brings life to the dead. While this conversation is taking place between Jesus and the woman, Jairus' situation takes a dark turn. Jesus had started going with him to his house, and here's what happens. Verse 35. 
while he was still speaking, while Jesus was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Don't fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was twelve years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. So, in verse 35, while Jesus is addressing the bleeding woman, news of Jairus' daughter's death arrives. And in verse 36, this is the, the first time in the narrative that Jesus' point of view takes over. He overhears the news, and he, he exhorts Jairus, don't fear, only believe. And this statement gives us a clue as to why Mark combines these stories in this sandwich format. We've got Jairus and then the bleeding woman and then Jairus again. And it's Mark actually does this many times through this gospel where he tells two stories that way. He cracks one open in half and sticks another one in the middle. He, he does that a bunch of times. Here, he does it because he's showing all of these connections between the two stories. Remember how in verse 25, the woman had been bleeding for 12 years? So now he tells us in 42 that this dead little girl was 12 years old. He wants us to connect the woman and the girl. And in fact, he goes even further than that. In verse 34, Jesus addressed the woman, the bleeding woman, as daughter, which... Verse 23 told us this was Jairus' daughter, my little daughter. So they're both, there's, a, there's an ordeal here that has to do with 12 years. They both are the daughters. But the key connection is that, is this connection of faith. In verse 34, faith, this woman's faith saved her. And in 36, Jesus now says that if Jairus perseveres in faith, he can save his daughter as well. So, Jairus, you, you, you've seen now what I can do. You saw what I did for this woman. These developments, this, this news that your daughter is dead, that doesn't change a thing. We're not yet at the end of the road, Jairus. You came to me believing that I could do something to make her live. Don't stop believing that I can make her live. Don't stop. Persevering faith must replace terminal fear. By terminal fear, I mean that fear that believes that we've come to the end of the road. This is over. It's done. We can't go anywhere. And instead, persevering faith must replace that. So in verses 37 to 40, Jesus now leaves everyone behind on his way to the house, except for Peter, James, John, and Jairus. 
Then he gets to the house, he kicks all the mourners out of the house, and he adds the girl's mother to his entourage. And presumably, Jairus has taken Jesus' advice to keep on believing, and so Jesus has very little tolerance for those who won't believe that he can do this, that, that raising this girl up is going to be like waking her up from sleep. And so those who don't believe, they miss out on his most amazing works. And in verse 41, we have another touching scene where Mark adds a sense of realism by quoting Jesus' Aramaic, Talitha Kumi. And then he translates it. Little girl, I say to you, arise. This is some of the evidence that lets us know that, that the audience that Mark was writing to was outside of Palestine. We had said a number of weeks ago, probably they were in Rome, suffering greatly. In verses 42 and 43, we see that Jairus is with Jesus to the end, even to the point where the last thing Jesus tells him to give her something to eat. And he's there believing and trusting that Jesus can do something amazing. The main point is that persevering faith must replace terminal fear. Don't ever give up hope. Don't ever think you've come to the end of the road. That's the terminal fear. Don't trust that this issue will never see any progress. Don't let your circumstances tell you to give up because there is always hope for change. There is always hope for life when the Son of God is involved. Why? Why is there hope for change and for life when the Son of God is involved? Because the Son of God gives life to the dead. In raising this little girl from the dead, Jesus actually foreshadows how he will raise himself from the dead later in the book. And he will raise himself from the dead after he dies on the cross to take our sins upon himself. Jesus paid our debts so we could have the freedom of God, and he died our death so we could have the life of God. And God didn't raise him from the dead for nothing. He wanted to show us that this Son of God gives life to the dead. How does this apply for us? Please don't ever think you've come to the end of the road. You know that difficult relationship you have? That besetting sin you struggle with? That annoying personality quirk? of yours or somebody else's, that, that deep-seated fear, all of it can change. Any of it can change. Jesus rose from the dead to make it possible to change. But here's the thing. If you think that he can't help you change, you're right. If you think he can't help you change, you're right. There are some who refuse to receive Jesus' hope and life. There are some who are sick, who are sinful, who are needy, and yet they distrust Jesus' ability to help them. They're too respectable to beg. They're too hopeless and embittered to try grabbing his garment. And they're too close to him. They think they're at the end of the road. They're too close to realize how special he is. This is our final episode here in Mark chapter 6, starting at verse 
wine. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. This is our last point, that fearful unbelief is something to marvel at. There are two things in this paragraph that should utterly shock us. The first is in verse 5 where Mark says, He could do no mighty work there. He could do no mighty work there. Can you believe that? Jesus could not do miracles in this town. He could not except to heal a few sick people, which I think is still pretty amazing, but Mark's really downplaying that. He could do no mighty work there. That should shock us. And verse 6 should also shock us. And he, Jesus, marveled because of their unbelief. All through the book, everyone has been marveling at Jesus over and over again. It says they marveled and they were astonished and they wondered how he did these things and he's done all things well. And here we have Jesus marveling. Did you know that you can shock Jesus? You have the power to stun him, to amaze him, to cause him to marvel. Just refuse to believe that he is the Son of God. Refuse to believe that he can help you. And he will marvel at such irrational unbelief. It's, it's like, what? What, what more could I do to prove myself to you? Look at what I've done. He will marvel. Just act as though nothing will ever change and keep doing the same thing. And guess what? Then nothing changes. How does this apply? Friends, please beware a routine familiarity with Jesus. It's important to get close to Jesus you know, notice that, that this was his hometown. These were the people he grew up with. They knew him as a, as a kid. And it's important for us to get close to Jesus. But if your closeness to him ever leads you to take him for granted because you think you understand him, you know what he will do, you know what he won't do, and walking with him is just a normal, in the sense of boring, part of your life, then you are on dangerous ground. And I want to speak in my last minute here to the children and the teenagers in the room. Because youngsters, young folk, as you grow into adults, as you grow up into being teenagers, as you grow up into being young people, young men and women, 
You may feel like you know all about Jesus because you've been hearing about Jesus your whole life. Every week you come here and we talk about Jesus and your parents talk to you about Jesus. And so many young people who have grown up in a church, they go off into life into into just a, a boring Christianity. They're bored of Jesus. And they just live life, just normal life. And they, they, they might even say, I'm still a Christian, but I'm just not passionate or excited. And I want to encourage you young folks, please don't ever lose the excitement of the good news. That Jesus died to rescue you from your sins. Don't ever lose your love and your passion for Jesus who was crucified, who raised from the dead, who ascended into heaven, the one who will do anything in order to help you to get closer to him. Don't lose that. And always keep in mind what he can do for you. And so we see that, that, that faith must replace fear for all of us. Imploring faith must replace humiliating fear. Saving faith must replace embittering fear. Persevering faith must replace terminal fear, and fearful unbelief is something to marvel at. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you for sending Jesus here. Lord, he, he is truly someone to marvel at. That, Lord, you have, have shown him to be the, the Son of God, that, that he has authority over demons and the elements and over death and life itself. Lord, please help us to believe, help us to grab a hold of Jesus and help us never to think we've, we've come to the end or things can't change or it's not worth it or we're going to be humiliated and protect us from bitterness. Help us to turn to you and to trust in you. And thank you, Jesus, for giving your body and your blood so we could have life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.